reading sections of Mark 2. This is a familiar story to you. It's the man you can see here lowered down from the roof to be healed by Jesus. The chapter begins. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Jesus was at home. Everybody just think about that for a second. Do you think of Jesus at home? Do you ever think of Jesus having a home? No, there's even a verse where Jesus says, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But the text actually says that Jesus had a home. Jesus had a house. Jesus was not poor. There's not a lot of... We, we have this inclination that Jesus is poor. He has, he has nowhere to go. But, but he has pretty wealthy people that are supporting him and taking care of him and his disciples. Um, and we know that Jesus had a home. We know because of the Christmas story that Jesus was given gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those were three of the most expensive products available in Jesus' day. Jesus had a king's ransom. Jesus had wealth and he had a job. He was a carpenter, a tecton, more like a contractor, trained probably by his father. Um, Jesus had a house. Think about Jesus having a house, hanging out at his house. Now, why wasn't Jesus at his house more? Well, apparently, when Jesus is home, his house fills with people wanting him to preach and teach and do miracles and things. He can't go home because when he goes home, there's no getting away from people at home. Sounds like Jesus had a pretty typical house. And if he did, it would have been basically like a box, much more simple design than, than we would have today. Um, just kind of a box, basic building. Uh, normally you could bring your animals into your house uh, at night. That would help you stay warm. And so there'd be kind of a sectioned off area. And sometimes there'd be a loft where on cooler nights you could go up and the hot air that would rise and would rise from the body heat of the animals would keep you warm at night. Um, there'd be some kind of a, there'd be beams or something to go across to hold up your roof. And uh, your roof almost acted like a second room. You would put uh, hay and things in between, uh, some boards or something, and then you'd have normally dirt. And you'd often let grass grow on your roof to sort of fill. It'd be more like a garden than a roof the way we think about it today. Probably slightly angled so the water could run off. Um, but you would spend time up there. In fact, sometimes the, your, your roof was called your upper room. There's a good chance that when Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, he wasn't necessarily in a room. He may have just been up on a rooftop, up in kind of a garden, up above the house. It was very common. Uh, in fact, people often slept up there in the summer. So if it was really hot in your house, it would be not a good way to cool your house in those days. You could go up on the roof and get a little bit of a breeze and uh, be out in the open air. Uh, that meant you would have stairs. You'd have to have some kind of access to the roof. And it also meant that if you wanted to get plants up or down from there, you could store a lot of plants and vegetables and fruit up there. Um, oftentimes you would want to be able to lower them down. So there's actually this understanding that there, there were tiles. There were some places where you'd leave a hole and cover it with tiles so that if you needed to raise and lower stuff up to the roof, you could open the roof and lower stuff or raise stuff down. Probably ropes sitting right there just to do that. In fact, this story 
in the Gospel of Luke, when these men are about to take apart the roof, it actually says tiles. Luke says they removed the tiles to have the opening to be able to pull this off. So, So think about it. Jesus has this house. And he's there. He's teaching. He must have had a loud voice. We know he preached to thousands of people at some point in his ministry. Uh, So he's got to have this loud voice and he's preaching. People are even outside the door kind of waiting to hear. But there is no room. Text continues. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down a bed on which the paralytic lay. Men come bringing this paralytic, and instantly we should have a lot of questions. First of all, why is this man paralytic? Why, why can't he walk? The Greek here is not real helpful, but does imply um, some kind of in- disease, maybe a palsy epilepsy or a Parkinson's, something that has debilitated this man to the point where he can't walk. Doesn't seem to be an injury. Seems to imply from birth or, or as he developed some kind of illness that won't allow this man to walk. Why is this man paralytic? The belief in Jesus' day was that if somebody had an illness like this, okay, if something happened that wasn't an accident, something happened where you were born with a disfigurement or a problem developed as you got older, the question always was, why did this happen? And the belief was, well, it was a punishment. It was a punishment. Well, either you did something bad, or your parents did something bad, or your grandparents did something really bad, and it's been passed down, and now you have some kind of a problem. It's some kind of way that God is punishing you or somebody in your family. Somebody earned this sin. We don't know. That text doesn't add that to the story. We don't know who these men are that brought this person. The text just says them. This says they, and there's four men. We don't know who they are. In fact, probably every sermon you've ever heard about this talked about this man who has these four great friends that bring him. Right? You've heard this sermon before. These four friends that are such great friends that bring him before. The text does not say friends. If they were friends, the text would say friends. The text says men. They seem actually like strangers. Like people just brought them. Notably, they're not family members. That's what we would expect. In Jesus' day, it was the family's responsibility to take care of those who were infirmed in the family. We live in a time where we have places, we have hospitals, and we have nursing homes, and we have uh, rehab centers, and we have places where people can get really good care. There's none of that first century, right? Your family is responsible to take care of you. And so the fact that this man is not brought by his family to see Jesus should instantly make us question some things. Where is his family? Why isn't his family with him? Have they passed away? Is he alone? We don't know yet in the story. But why is his family not caring for him? But who are these men? These men may have been the Essenes. The Essenes are this religious group in Jesus' time, this Jewish group. And each of them, as part of their training, 
And part of their uh, life would take at least a year or two to take care of those who were infirmed and needy in the community. They're basically kind of like the Salvation Army of the first century. So whoever these men are, they, they're taking care of this man and they think, we have got to get him in to see Jesus. We've we got to do this. And um, it's busy, right? It's crowded. We can't get the man to see Jesus in his house. And so they know how houses work. Probably their house also has a roof. So they get up there and they, and they see there's these tiles again that Luke talks about. They remove the tiles and lower this man on his bed, on his pallet. They carry him down in. And you might assume there's an uproar, right? Doesn't, when, just because there's a hole in the ceiling where stuff goes doesn't mean there's not people sitting there listening to Jesus. So everybody's kindly sitting to Jesus. You hear some noise above you. Maybe some dirt falls down. You look up and see the ceiling opening above you and something being lowered down on top of you. It's already crowded, so everybody's got to crowd more to make room for this man coming down from the ceiling. The text continues. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Very interesting phrase. When Jesus sees the faith of these men. There's multiple times in Jesus' ministry when he says, Go, your faith has made you well. Everybody knows these texts, right? Your faith has made you well. This is the only text I can find where the implication is, Go, the faith of these other guys has made you well. The faith of these men, Jesus sees. And what does he say to this man? He doesn't instantly heal him as a paralytic. Jesus goes past the physical pain and says, no, 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 there's a much deeper pain that we've got to deal with here. And he says, son, son. This is the only time in the Bible Jesus ever called a person son. This never happens. He's a son. He calls people brothers. He does not call people son. This is the one time he calls a person's son. And isn't it interesting that he calls a person's son who doesn't have family taking care of him? I mean, for this man, this paralytic man, who, whose family is missing in the story, for him to call that man's son, that's very specific. Very specific. That man must not feel like a son must not feel like a son, that no one is taking care of him, that his family is not there. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. We're not even talking about sins. You instantly, what's the reaction you get when this person comes down from the ceiling? He's lowered down. Of course this must be a paralytic. You must have seen him maybe begging in the community. Maybe the community knows who this man is. And Jesus' instant reaction is not to heal the man, not to talk to the man about why did you just come down from the roof. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. But of course, that's exactly what this person's been wondering their whole life. Right? What did I do? What kind of sin did I commit that I can't walk anymore? That I can't go anywhere? That somebody has to help me along? What did I do to deserve this? That's got to be the prayer life of this man. That's got to be the only thing this guy prayers about anymore. Why did my family leave me? 
Why am I like I am? What did I do to deserve this? And Jesus' first gut is to go right to the heart of the issue and say, son, your sins are forgiven. We can deal with a physical healing later. Let's deal with the heart of the matter of what this man truly needs. Healed relationships and a healed view of self. Text continues. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they question in their heart. You notice that? Not out loud. But these scribes that are listening to Jesus are thinking, they're thinking in their head, thinking, who is this guy that can forgive sins? See, they want, they want to listen to Jesus. They want Jesus to teach. They want Jesus to be a really good man. But they are not comfortable with the idea that Jesus is God. This has been the problem for a lot of people in history since then. And is a problem for us often too. But of course, Jesus is God. And that's part of why this story is in here. But Jesus perceives what's going on with them. He perceives, oh man, they're really questioning this. They're really bothered. But we can do that. Have you ever done that before? Somebody says they're fine. You know they're not fine. Somebody says, oh, it's okay. It's nothing. And you know it's something. Like people can give off this sort of vibe and how they talk or how they move where you can perceive, oh, that's not the whole story. So Jesus perceives. Okay, he gets this feeling. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Jesus perceives what they're talking about in their head. And he asks them a question in response. Why, why, are you, why, are you pers- why are you questioning these things? Which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal somebody? Well, obviously, anybody can say, I forgive you, right? We, we gotta, I don't know if you're God or you're not, but you can say that, right? But it is much harder and it's much more proof if you can say to somebody, get up, grab your bed and walk out of here. Jesus says, I, I could do both, right? And so he proceeds to do that. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus has already begun to heal this man. He's already begun to heal in his spirit. Now he heals him physically. He says, get up. Grab your bed and go home. Everybody, that's a really important detail. This man has a home. This man has a home. This man has a family. He does have a family that has rejected him. And maybe he hasn't been home in a long time. Maybe he has not been home in a long time because of the pain, because of the rejection. Maybe because they feel bad, that they did something wrong, that it's then passed to him. We don't know the backstory, but we know 
that Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Why pick up your bed? Well, it's Jesus' house. I'm not sure he wants the bed in there, right? I might have to clean this up later. You better take that with you. But maybe more than that, maybe, maybe this bed is a symbol for this man. I wonder if this man kept that bed in his corner the rest of his life and said, hey, see that bed? I used to be stuck in that bed. I used to be stuck in that bed until Jesus healed me. Now I don't need that bed anymore. I wonder if it's this great symbol of the past life that Jesus rescued him from. And I wonder if Jesus' thoughts on forgiveness here, that he forgives the man and that he talks about forgiveness with those scribes that are questioning him, or as much for the man as it is for the scribes. I wonder if this man needs to forgive. I wonder if this man needs to go home and forgive those who rejected him. Forgive those who abandoned him. Forgive those that no longer call him son. And maybe by him realizing that he's a son, Jesus finally calling him son, he can decide he's son enough to go back to those family members that rejected him and and heal those relationships. Maybe that's us too. Maybe, Maybe we need to decide we're son or daughter enough with Jesus that whatever happened with our parents or grandparents or other authority figures in our life, we can let that be because it's enough that we're a son or daughter of the king. And what's the response of all these people? They're amazed and glorify God saying, we never saw anything like this. Remember, this is early in Jesus' ministry. We're in Mark chapter 2. They're going to see a lot more like this. And I wonder if actually we get to see this all the time also. I see so many people that are like this lame man. Alone, abandoned, broken. They have something they think is wrong with them that has separated them from family members. They feel distant from God and wonder, why me? What did I do to deserve this? They don't know how to come before God. There's something separating them from Jesus. They, they just don't, how do I pray in this moment? How do I ask for things I'm not sure I deserve? We all have times like this in our faith where we don't have the strength, where we feel ashamed, where we feel far away from God. Times when we can't pray, we can't come to God and we don't know what to say. But I think there's a real blessing in the church that's symbolized in this story. Something I think we have, this great power that we don't always realize we have. The traditional word for it is called intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. It's the idea that we have the ability as Christians to pray for one another. Like these four men in the story, we can be strangers. Or it can be our best friends. It can be our family could be our neighbor down the street. But we have the ability to pray for other people. And I think this is a great picture of it. We have the ability to pray for one another, to take the roof off, to say, you've got stuff coming between you and God right now, and I'm not sure you're going to be able to overcome those things. But guess what? I can take you before God. I can take the roof off. I can lay you before Jesus and say, Lord, look what's going on here. This person is in need. Sometimes God sees our faith, and like these four men, 
honors our faith on somebody else's behalf. Right? That person's running out of faith, but because of the faith of this community, I'm going to respond to that person. We get to take people before God, and our faith can make others well. We can bring healing in life and in relationships through our prayer. And isn't it interesting in the story that the men are gone? We hear nothing further about the four men. We know there were four of them. We know they lowered the man. We don't even know that they went in the house. We just know that we are left with them up on the roof, lowering this man before Jesus. Intercessory prayer is not about us. It's not about us. It's not about us getting thanked. It's not about us getting the glory. It is about us laying the needs of others before God. And that is a privilege that I'm not sure we take seriously enough. I'm not sure I take seriously enough. The right and responsibility that we have to pray for other people. Romans chapter 8 even says that the Spirit prays for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I find great comfort in that, that when, I, when I'm crying, when I'm upset, when I don't know what to say to God anymore, I know other people are praying for me, but I also know the Holy Spirit goes before God in words I can't even understand and expresses those things in my heart that I have trouble putting voice to. What a great honor and privilege we have to pray for others, to take the roof off, to lay others before God, that by our faith they may be made well. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for us today that we would take intercessory prayer seriously, that we would pray for others, that you would give us a heart for speaking the name of others before you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.